So I, I feel certain that most of us at least have followed closely the thing we've been praying about in these recent weeks, this, uh, this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And if you've been following along, wherever you get your news, whether it's on the television, a lot of, a lot of my news I get through Twitter, but we've, we've seen, I, I'm sure, this very stunning um, uh, turn of events within the country of the Ukraine where we might expect the leadership to abandon ship or to wave a white flag. The leader of the country, his name is President Zelensky, has actually uh, shown himself to be incredibly courageous and bold in the face of this invasion. But like I said, he, he didn't evacuate the capital as some suggested that he should. He didn't go into hiding. He's not in a bunker somewhere. Uh, Zelensky has remained in Kiev, the capital. He's been posting videos of himself online in the streets, showing solidarity with the people. He's been defying Russians' attempts to intimidate, even to assassinate. Uh, he's been refusing to back down or to surrender, knowing all the while that his life is in serious jeopardy, knowing that any moment might be his last. But he's not only rallied his own country around him, so many people around the world are now in support of the Ukraine, at least in part because of the great courage of their leader. And y'all, as we, as we watch this, and of course, if you're like me, I didn't even know his name prior to all of this, but I'm inspired by him. And, and my sense is that when we think of our own leaders, anybody who's a leader in any capacity, this is the kind of courage we hope for and expect in our leaders. This is the kind of courage I would hope to see in myself if ever faced with such dire circumstances that we would have this kind of resolve and stand in the face of evil. Um, it's also the same kind of courage we really love to read about in the Bible. I don't, ever since you were a kid, if you grew up in or, in or around church, so many of the great Bible stories, the accounts that we love, are about courage in the face of insurmountable odds, aren't they? I mean, think about it. Think about Moses before Pharaoh and David before Goliath and Esther before the king, and Daniel in the lion's den. And we really could go on and on about these, these stories of great courage in the face of evil, where people, by faith in God, confronted, not only confronted the enemy, but overcame, right? That's the kind of stuff we like when we read the Bible. So if I tell you to turn to John 18, but without looking, Jesus is about to face his arrest, his betrayal, his trial, all leading to the crucifixion. How do you think he's going to handle it? Do you think he's going to turn tail at this point and run? No, if we have any sense of, of what's happened to this point in the Gospel of John, we know Jesus, surely Jesus is going to face with great resolve, with great courage, all that's coming his way. He's not going to back down. He's not going to retract his statements about his own divine identity and authority. Not now. He's going to face with absolute courage, the evil that's about to come upon him. Right? But I also want to communicate to us today something truly unique that we see in Jesus, something that, that no one else has ever put on display throughout human history. Jesus alone stands here today. No great hero, no leader, no martyr has ever faced what Jesus had to face. Okay, and so when I say that, I'm not talking about merely, you know, suffering unjustly. Many people have suffered injustice. A great many people have died for good causes. But what we see in the scripture today is something that Jesus alone could face and did face. 
And it's really something that's beyond our categories. Something we would never conceive of if we didn't see it on the pages of Scripture. So as we look today, we're going to look at John 18, verses 1 through 14, the first portion of this chapter. What's just occurred, we're right on the heels of the upper room where Jesus shared in the Last Supper with his disciples, the eleven who remain minus Judas. He shared his parting words with them. He gave a parting prayer on their behalf. We just finished that last week. But now we turn the page. Quite literally, we turn the page to what we call Jesus' passion, his suffering. Here it really begins in John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is chapters 13 through 17, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So the, the, the stage is set. Leaving the upper room, Jesus takes his disciples with him to a garden. Now John doesn't name the garden, but we know this is Gethsemane, which is the garden of the oil press. That's what that word means. This is Gethsemane, and something that John does not record, but that we know well from the other Gospels, Gethsemane is where Jesus falls on his face and prays a prayer of great agony in the prospect of going to the cross. He also asked his disciples in the garden to stay at a distance and pray for him and with him and for themselves, but you know what they did? They just kept falling asleep. Jesus said, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Um, my point in that is to say, this, this is not a stroll through the garden. All right? this, is a, this is a place of great agony. Luke tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was so distressed, so distraught, that he sweat drops of blood from his forehead. That's how bad it is for him as he faces the crucifixion. So Gethsemane, right here as we read this, this is a place of intense heaviness. And agony, right? But it's interesting to note what John just told us, that Judas essentially knew that Jesus would be there. Because Gethsemane was a place where Jesus often met with the disciples. Now here's a, here's a point as we talk about the courage of Christ. If Jesus wanted to avoid his fate, this suffering, he could have easily carved out a secret place, a place he and his disciples had never been, to throw off the scent, right? But instead, he takes the 11 with him to a place where he knew Judas would look and find him. He goes toward evil, not away from it. And of course, Judas does come, along with, John tells us, the Jewish temple officers and a Roman cohort. Now, y'all, just for the sake of trivia, a Roman cohort contained about 600 soldiers. So even if only a portion of the cohort actually accompanies Judas here, only if only a portion, we still, we're not talking about a small posse. We're not talking about a half a dozen guys showing up in the garden. We're talking about a small army come to ensure that Jesus is captured without incident. Now look at verse 7, or 4 rather, verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, 
went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is one of the the amazing things that we see all throughout the Gospel of John. We see just these these pictures on almost every page of the the Gospel. We see these pictures of Jesus' divine, sovereign authority. He is powerful. Now, Jesus was, most assuredly, he was a man. He had real flesh and bone and blood, just like us. Just like us, Jesus was touchable. He was killable, as we'll see. And yet he was also God. He was not merely a man. He is fully God. And so all throughout John, Jesus displays this divine authority. He knows what's in the people's hearts. He knows their motives, even if they go unspoken. Jesus knows who believes in him and who doesn't. We saw that way back in John chapter 6. Jesus knew already the one who would betray him. Before anybody else could perceive Judas's intentions, Jesus knew him. Jesus knew that he could not die until the appointed time came that the Father had set. His hour would come only as God ordained. No one could touch him until then. And so in verse 4, when John says Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him went forth, this is not Jesus just perceiving that the end was near. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what's happening, and he goes toward the danger, not away from it. He displays ultimate courage. And when he speaks the words, I am he, you notice what John says? The mob falls backward. They fall to the ground. Now, my sense is, as John records this event, he was there. As he writes these words, he's not just being dramatic. He's not just trying to drum up suspense to be sensational. This is simply underscoring who Jesus has been all throughout. This this is something Jesus actually said back in chapter 10, It's now finally coming to fruition. In John 10, listen to this. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus is the one in control at this moment. I mean, and it's, it's crazy for us to say that, perhaps, because we've got on one side, we've got a host of armed and skillfully trained soldiers. And here on the other side of the garden, we've got Jesus with nothing. No weapon, no, no army to, to stand by his side. He's got nothing at all in the face of this great uh, uh, enemy before him, and yet he's the one in control. He's the one with the authority here. They cannot touch him apart from the divine decree of God. And that's why when he says, I am he, they fall backward. He's the one with the power. Now, verse 7, therefore, Jesus again asked them, whom do you seek? 
And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Now, if, y'all, if you remember this from, from earlier chapters, Jesus already prophesied, he told his disciples that they will be scattered. And in other gospel accounts, we find out that when push came to shove here in the garden, they all fled, they ran. In the time of great testing, they all saved themselves rather than standing with Jesus. But there's an amazing insight right here in John. Jesus says, if it's me you want, if it's me you want, then let these 11 go. Jesus is ensuring their safety and their survival. In reality, these 11 men did not save themselves. Jesus ensured that they would survive by taking the fall for them and letting them go. Y'all, we talk all the time about the fact that Jesus died for us. But I want you to think about these 11 men um, who, who surely, in their, each in their own way, must have dealt with some guilt and shame over this moment. That when they had the opportunity to suffer with him, they ran away. But these men, for the rest of their lives, would have known something very profound for themselves. It wasn't merely that Jesus had died for them, for their sins. Jesus right here is dying instead of them. He's taking the full force of the Jewish and Roman authorities and making sure that these men are preserved just as he promised he would. He spares their lives so that they may go on. He dies instead of them. Now, all of the disciples, it seems, are, are, are good with this plan, except one. You want to guess who the one is? Look at verse 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Uh, Peter, who tends to be impulsive, tries to defend Jesus with the sword, right? And he cuts off poor Malchus's ear. Uh, And so Jesus, of course, rebukes Peter. And we could almost, you know, we see him putting his hand on Peter's chest here. Put your sword away. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus then heals Malchus's ear, which was awfully sweet. Um, You know, it's actually, this is, we have no evidence or proof of this. It's mere speculation, but it's interesting. It's suspected by some that Malchus's name shows up here in John because Malchus became a follower of Christ and therefore he would have been an eyewitness to this account. Go find Malchus. He'll corroborate the story. That's at least possible, although not certain. But Jesus heals Malchus's ear and he tells Peter, put the sword away. Now this is something I really want to spend some time on here. This really, I just want to make this maybe the centerpiece of the message. If if Jesus were merely speaking practically at this point, we would understand Jesus to say, Peter, there are 600 plus men, and one of you, you're the only one willing to draw the sword and fight. How do you think this is going to go? We don't stand a chance. Who are we in the face of such a great army? 
Now, practically speaking, that, that would be true. But that's not what Jesus says. He's not saying it's too little and too late to save me, Peter. No. Look again at the message of verse 11. He says, Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Back in in chapter 12 of John, Jesus gives the same um, idea when he says, this is chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. That's what's happening here in John 18. The hour of suffering and death for Jesus has finally come. And what Peter and the disciples still can't really comprehend, that there is no rescuing Jesus from this fate. There is no drawing the sword and giving him time to escape out the back door. No, this is precisely what he came to do. And y'all, this is the point that I was alluding to earlier when I said, you know, many, a great many people have suffered unjustly. A great many people have, have died for a good cause. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus is actually doing something. He's entering into something that no one else ever has or ever could. And he says it in verse 11. He alone will drink this cup that the Father has given him to drink. Now that may seem strange or confusing. What's this cup that Jesus speaks of? The cup is a symbol, it's a picture of suffering that comes under the judgment of God. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this in the prophets, we see it in the Psalms. There are places where where we see God's wrath towards sin pictured as a cup, a cup that sinners must drink. It represents the condemnation that sin brings upon those who reject the Lord. Because of their rejection, they must drink the cup of his anger and his judgment. Now, we're putting these two things together in this moment. We've got Jesus claiming to be drinking this cup. And, and if we hear that, and if we think about it for, for half a second, there should be in our own hearts a very sharp and passionate objection here. That of all the people who have ever lived, there's only one who has no business drinking this cup. Jesus should not be drinking the cup of God's judgment for sin. He's the only sinless person there ever was. Jesus is the only one who truly has a clean and spotless record. Jesus never had to take back something he said and apologize for it. Jesus never had to repent publicly for uh, betraying someone or for uh, losing his reputation in ministry. There's not a single thing he ever did that warranted God's judgment. And so if Jesus is going to drink any cup, it ought to be the Psalm 23 cup. My cup overflows, right? The cup of blessing and honor. But y'all, this right here, if we understand it right, this is actually the place where we find our hope. Jesus calls it the cup which the Father has given me to drink. The Father is giving Jesus the cup to drink. And this is uh, um, something I find really interesting about Jesus' language throughout the gospel. I've tried to highlight it as we've come to it. So many places in John, 
Jesus speaks of things the Father gives him. And there's this wonderful relationship of giving and receiving. We, can, we continue to see it over and over. And things that the Father has given the Son, it's a long list. I'll just give you a little sampling here. Jesus says, the Father gives me the words I speak. The Father... Thanks, Jeff. The word. If you own a, just go ahead and own up to it, y'all. If you, if you, if you have a bluish purple Hyundai Sonata, okay. There's no no sense in hiding it now. Um, Jesus says the Father gives me the words I speak. The Father gives me all the works that I perform. The Father gives the Son His glory. The Father gives the Son authority over all flesh. The Father gives people to the Son. And then the Son gives them eternal life. And in every case, as we read those gifts from the Father to the Son, we say, well, of course. Of course the Father is going to give the Son these things because the Son is worthy of these good gifts. Good works, good words, truth, grace, authority, all of it, right? It's very natural to see that from father to son. But here in Gethsemane, the father gives the son something we would never expect. The father gives me, Jesus says, this cup to drink. The cup that Jesus did not deserve. The penalty and the judgment for sins he did not commit becomes the cup that he alone must drink. And this is the very heart of the Christian faith, y'all. And we think about it. If God truly is holy and just and righteous, then every sin must carry a just penalty. God sweeps no sin under the rug. To do that would, to, would be to forsake justice. He wouldn't be trustworthy in that case if he let evil run free. Every single sin carries with it its penalty. And that means that sinners like me are rightly condemned. We stand under judgment because God's character cannot be diminished. We're dead to sin. We're dead to God, rather, because of our sin. And yet we also know, if we've read our Bibles, we know that God is rich in mercy and in love, and he's eager to forgive. Now, the difficulty comes in this. How in the world can God, being perfect in all his attributes, how can God hold these things together toward us? How can God be holy and just toward sinners and also be merciful and forgiving? Well, there's only one way. There's only one. If you, uh, if you saw the Avengers movies, especially uh, Infinity War and Endgame, the final two, then you remember this, this conversation between Dr. Strange and Iron Man. Uh, Dr. Strange says, I've looked into all future possibilities as to how this war will end. 14 million plus possible outcomes. And Iron Man says, okay, and how many of those outcomes do we win? And, and Dr. Strange says, one. The odds are insurmountable. One out of this great many possibilities. Well, then later on, when all hope seems lost, their eyes meet on the battlefield. And Dr. Strange simply does this. 
he holds up one trembling finger. And we all know what he means. This is it. This is the one and only way victory can be won. If we ask this question, how in the world can God be perfectly just towards sin and also forgive sinners at the same time like two opposite ends of a magnet they, po- they can't possibly touch? There's one way. Only if, if God's sinless Son bears the penalty for our sin. Only if God Himself drinks the cup of judgment into himself on our behalf. The Apostle Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Peter says it also, 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Now this is the same Peter who wrote those words, the same one who just tried to rescue Jesus from the prospect of death. And yet later, years later, as he writes that first epistle, he's come to understand this was God's gracious purpose. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus Christ has taken our sin, our unrighteousness, our penalty, our condemnation. He's taken it all upon Himself so that for those who trust in Him and receive His grace, we might be made righteous, fully forgiven, fully alive, forever accepted and embraced by a heavenly Father who loves us. The cup the Father gives him to drink, he drinks it to the full. Our condemnation becomes his. His righteousness becomes ours. And so y'all, all that that we're reading now, this week and in the weeks to come, this arrest, the coming trial, Jesus' crucifixion, we can say simultaneously, it was wrong. It was unjust. It was evil. It was criminal in every way. The highest crime possible. The crime of killing the perfect Son of God. Everything about it was bad and wrong. And yet, every single bit of it accords with God's redemptive plan. At no point was Jesus a pure victim in the sense that we esteem it. Every single thing that happens here is exactly as God scripted it for the redemption of sinners. We see that, y'all. We're going to just, we're going to very, very, very briefly here look at these last few verses of this portion, 12 through 14. Notice what happens here. The Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. John's reminding us here, not just about who Caiaphas is, but what he said. Way back in chapter 11, Caiaphas unwittingly prophesies that Jesus is going to die on behalf of the people. 
He didn't understand what he meant, but as he spoke the words, he affirmed God's plan. This this powerful man, Caiaphas, who was dead set against Jesus, who had made himself his enemy, who was out for Jesus' blood, he was playing a part in what God had purposed to do, both in his words and actions, just like Pilate, we'll see that in a few weeks. Everybody who set their hand against Jesus was simply playing the role that God had purposed them to play so that salvation might come to the world. And so, y'all, as we, as we close, we kind of take this back to the front. We, 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 we admire real courage when we see it, and we should. And certainly Jesus faced his suffering and his death with the utmost courage and resolve. But we don't stop there with Jesus. Because he didn't resolve to die for a cause. Jesus didn't die merely to serve as an example for us to follow. What we see here in Jesus committing to drink the cup is that he is giving his life for the sake of the world. He is dying in our place and for our sake so that through his death, through his death, we may be made alive to God. And I want to appeal to us as we close. If if you have not received this gift of his saving grace, it is free for all who believe. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so my hope for us this morning is that we will trust him for all that he is, for all that he's done. The cup of judgment he drank to the full so that we might be forgiven and made righteous forever. May we receive him this morning as we pray. Father, I pray your help for us this morning that we will receive um, both the bad news and the good news as one great message. Help us, Lord, to see and, and just to own up to reality that under your justice, under your holiness, Father. We stand no chance. We are sinners. And under uh, condemnation, Lord, we, we have now and will have forever no argument against that fact. And yet, Lord, it's, it's into that darkest place that Jesus Christ plunged himself He came precisely for us, we who could not save ourselves. And Lord, we thank you this morning. Father, thank you that you did not offer us a a new uh, form of religion, a good example to follow, but that you, Lord, sent us a Savior. the only one qualified, the only one willing to drink the cup of your wrath towards sin all the way to the bottom. So, Father, as we recognize this this incredible exchange that has taken place, our sin upon him, his righteousness now upon us, 
Father, would you, would you give us a joy, a gladness, a resolve greater than what we've ever known, greater than what we could find in ourselves only. As we said earlier in, in the welcome, um, as those who have received Christ, may we also walk in him, to trust him and now to live, to live as those who are truly free. Lord, thank you that, that what we see pictured in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus saying, take me and let these go. That, that to, an, to an infinitely greater degree, Jesus gave us this same message at the cross. Take me. That we might go free. That we might be set free. by faith in his name. Lord, fill us with faith to see, with faith to receive this most precious gift. And Lord, let it be that, that perhaps, whether we're maybe receiving it even for the first time this morning, to trust in Christ, or whether we're uh, refreshed in his grace now again for the thousandth time. Lord, let it be uh, everything we are, everything we aspire to be, that to know Christ and to walk in him because he's been this good to us. We pray it in his awesome name. Amen.